we should, and I am, uh, in the process when the, when the uh, uh, this House and Senate gets back, they're going to have to. Uh, there's going to be some consequences for what they've done with Russia. What kind of consequences? Menendez says suspend all arms sales. Is that something you'd consider? I'm not going to get into what I'd consider and what I'm have in mind, but there will be there will be consequences. That was President Biden this week in an exchange with CNN's Jake Tapper, vowing there will be consequences for Saudi Arabia in light of their decision to join with Russia in cutting back oil production, a move guaranteed to help Vladimir Putin in his war with Ukraine, while at the same time jacking up gas prices for American consumers. The Saudi move jolted the White House, coming barely three months after Biden famously fist-bumped the country's de facto ruler, Mohammed bin Salman, the very same crown prince who, according to U.S. intelligence, approved the operation that brutally murdered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But what should those consequences for the Saudis actually be? Biden didn't say. But one senator who has been among the most outspoken on the issue is Connecticut's Chris Murphy, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We'll talk to him about the U.S.-Saudi relationship and the war in Ukraine, as well as this week's nearly billion-dollar verdict against conspiracy theorist Alex Jones for his lies about the 2012 massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, Senior Counsel at States United. So every few years, it seems, uh, in Washington, uh, we go through this uh, big kerfuffle about the U.S.-Saudi relationship, about how the Saudis do stuff that are offensive to our values, that uh, undercut our interests. And um, there's always these uh, commentaries, things are going to change. President Biden, during the campaign, you know, called for turning Saudi Arabia into a pariah state uh, over its assassination of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And of course, that seems to have gone away. And uh, Biden goes to Saudi Arabia and meets with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So I guess I have to say I'm a little bit skeptical that uh, this break is a real one. But it certainly raises a lot of questions because this one for everything else is going to hurt American consumers in the pocketbook. Yeah. I mean, I'm always skeptical when you hear presidents say they're going to reassess the relationship with Saudi Arabia. You know, they've always called this relationship an institutional relationship, which is to say uh, that it's not just about, you know, the heads of state. I mean, it's about, you know, our military um, and intelligence establishments and on the Saudi side about their military and, of course, the royal family. But this might be different for exactly the reason uh, that that you just mentioned. And it also seemed, in a way, kind of gratuitous. Uh, MBS kind of striking out against the United States um, in the interests of, of Russia. 
you know, when the whole kind of civilized world is united against uh, what the Russians uh, have done in, in Ukraine. It's not clear to me that the Saudis had to do this for their own financial interests. The market is very tight now. So, you know, the idea that they had to decrease production to make a lot more money just didn't make a lot of sense. It so, seems like a personal rebuke. It seems like a personal rebuke. Um, to Biden. And yeah, to Biden. And, you know, and the question is, is this, you know, really kind of unique to MBS, you know, so not the institutional relationship uh, that I was talking about before, but MBS, who's kind of an erratic guy, yeah, to he's say the least. Yeah, he's hot-headed, and, uh, you know, he lashes out, and we saw that through, the, you know, the entire Khashoggi saga. Yeah, and is this is this a way for him to say, you know, I'm, I'm going to... I'm just going to break free from the shackles of this, you know, relationship with the United States. I don't need the Americans, you know, which does not seem particularly uh, farsighted or strategic. Well, everyone's right to be skeptical about this because the cold hard facts are that the best that the kind of the national interests of both countries, the United States and Saudi Arabia, are deeply intertwined. And it is highly unlikely. And in fact, it would be foolhardy for the United States to make an actual enemy of Saudi Arabia and to actually step away from and cease all relations with that country, no matter how abhorrent or repugnant some of that country's behavior is and has been over the course of the last few decades. The fact is they cut oil production, OPEC, by 2 million barrels. If they're our enemy, they can cut it by 5 million barrels. They can cut it by more and really deeply injure the United States. Um, and they are so, a bulwark so against talking, Iran and you know all of that's true too. So, so we're talking about subtle gradations. We're talking about little changes in the relationships, small rebukes here or there, and that's what that's what we're talking about. And I think, you know, as you know, Chris Murphy is someone who understands those little subtle changes and moves that maybe do add up ultimately to some sort of impact in terms of Saudi Arabia's behavior and America's behavior. But anyone who's holding out for some sort of grand gesture or re you know, massive reevaluation of America's relationship with Saudi Arabia is I don't think looking at the cold, hard facts. And by the way, Victoria, uh, we should point out that you worked for Chris Murphy in the Senate and you were not on Saudi Arabia issues. No, but, in fact, yeah. you worked you worked with him on, on on issues that are very much in the news today with the Alex Jones uh, verdict, you know, sense of finding a way a path forward on um, on sensible, sensible gun safety laws. And so we'll be talking to him about the uh, Alex Jones uh, verdict. And I think uh, before the podcast, you pointed out that Murphy was elected to the Senate from Connecticut in 2012, just, just weeks. weeks before uh, the uh, Sandy Hook massacre in, in, in Newtown. So this is an issue uh, that is um, very important to him and near and dear to his heart. And he, he represented uh, Newtown as a member of the House before he was elected to the Senate. So he knows these families. He's He knows what they've gone through and can speak with more authority than anybody else about what this has meant for them. I just want to make one other final point on the Saudi relationship. To, to me, what this does is just underscore the uh, hypocrisy and contradiction 
contradictions of American foreign policy when it comes to human rights. I mean, the ultimate fallback position on the Saudi relationship is, well, you know, we need to meet with them. We need to talk to them. That's just in our national interest. But, you know, I just recently did the um, Conspiracy Land uh, podcast series on the U.S.-Cuba relationship in which this spring, you know, shortly before Biden flies to meet with MBS, you know, the guy who we hold responsible for murdering uh, a journalist for an American newspaper, the Biden White House refused to invite the Cubans and the Venezuelans and the Nicaraguans to a summit of the Americas conference in Los Angeles hosted by President Biden. And the explanation that I got from the State Department on that is, well, Cuba does not conform to our human rights standards. They're an oppressive country. They're anti-democratic. And therefore, we're not going to talk to them. And then... Biden goes off and talks to a country, uh, his leader, Saudi Arabia, every bit as repressive as the Cubans. Uh, in you, fact, I think one shocked, could... Uh, shocked yeah. at the inconsistency, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> the, not, the, not the, shocked. The, the crucial difference being access to massive reserves of oil. I understand it. I, I'm not shocked, but I think it's always worth pointing, worth pointing out. out. That's, worth pointing uh, out. That's yeah. all I'm saying. All right, look, um, we've got a great guest, Senator Chris Murphy, uh, before we get to him, I should point out uh, that we will be doing a separate podcast that we'll be putting out hopefully within the next 24 hours on the what appears to be final January 6th hearings coming Thursday afternoon. So please uh, stay tuned and listen to that. And in the meantime, uh, we've got Senator Murphy here. So let's get to it. We now have with us Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks so much for having me. So you have been quite outspoken about the need for the United States to reevaluate its relationship with Saudi Arabia, especially in light of the move last week by the Saudis to join with the Russians to uh, limit oil production. Uh, the president has said there will be consequences, but he hasn't said what they should be. What do you believe and what do you want them to be? Well, I frankly prefer to talk about this issue outside of the, the frame of tit for tat. You know, my contention is that Saudi Arabia has you know, been an unreliable ally for a very long time and that we give them much more than they give us. Uh, our national security interests are just not as aligned as they used to be. And our policy towards Saudi Arabia should reflect that. Um, so I, I don't know that this should be thought of as you know, the Saudis did something to us and we're going to do something to them. You know, we just spend, you know, far too much time, energy, resources protecting Saudi Arabia, given the fact that, you know, often they are using our weapons to um, uh, in ways that are adverse to our security interests. So I think it's time for us to you know, seriously rethink our security relationship. I'll give you two sort of short term steps we could take. There are two really important missile systems, anti-missile systems that uh, we provide to Saudi Arabia, the AMRAMs and the Patriots, both of which um, would be much better utilized inside Ukraine or 
um, inside NATO allies that are on Russia's periphery. Um, we could simply start by taking the AMRAMs and the Patriots and moving them into either Ukraine or Poland or other countries that right now matter more to the United States than Saudi Arabia. Um, so I think there are some short-term steps we can take, but I think this is not about you know, punishing the Saudis for lowering oil input. It's just recognizing that the Saudis are no longer a, an ally of the United States in the way that they might have been decades ago. So, Senator, just a, a follow up on that, because as you point out, our divergence with the Saudis has been coming for quite some time. Yet there's one enduring image that the American public has now about our relationship with Saudi Arabia, and that was the fist bump between President Biden and uh, Mohammed bin Salman in July. Uh, when the president went there. Now, I know you have said that you don't want to criticize uh, the president for meeting with a foreign leader, but the fist bump stands out as an image. And I just want to read you something quickly that uh, Fred Ryan, the publisher of The Washington Post, said at the time, the fist bump between President Biden and MBS was worse than a handshake. It was shameful. It projected a level of intimacy and comfort that delivers to MBS the unwarranted redemption he has been desperately seeking. In retrospect, was the fist bump a mistake? Oh, my God. I'm just so sick of talking about it. I mean, why? Because they were fist bumping because of COVID protocols. I mean, they, they weren't fist bumping because they're good buddies. They were fist bumping because they made the decision that COVID protocols didn't allow them to shake hands. I, I mean, I just think this is so overwrought. You know, the, the United States has a relationship with Saudi Arabia. The president of the United States should be able to talk to the crown prince. Um, I frankly think the United States should be talking to our adversaries too. I think the United States should be talking to the Iranians. I think we should be in dialogue with the North Koreans. I think occasionally we should be talking with the Russians. And should we be talking to Vladimir Putin? Yeah, this this. Well, I mean, listen, we 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 have to. We are constantly talking to our to many of our adversaries because uh, we often um, have as as some shared interests side by side with those places where we have deep friction. So I just don't think there's any harm in the United States talking to the Saudis and this idea, you know, that the fist bump portrayed some level of intimacy is nonsense. The fist bump was a substitution during protocol because of, because of COVID protocols for a handshake. So you, we mentioned uh, Putin and Russia. The Saudis, they seems like they didn't have to do what they did, right? You know, th this is a time when the market is tight. They didn't have to cut production for financial reasons. And so the suggestion is that they did it for other reasons. They did it possibly to help the Russians. And so they've already done that. I guess the question is, if we fundamentally change our policy, our posture toward uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and our relationship with them, should there be a concern that we will drive uh, the Saudis further into the arms of, of, of the Russians and, and the Chinese? And how do you manage that? So this is, um, you know, a very consistent argument that's made um, in uh, reaction to proposals to change our relationship with Saudi Arabia, that they will, you know, simply substitute Russian or Chinese support for U.S. support. Let's be very clear. There is no equal to the United States when it comes to security partnership. There is no substitute for the weapons and the defense systems that the United States provides. We should call the Saudis bluff. If they think that they're going to be just as well protected or better protected by Chinese systems or Russian systems, they can go ahead and try it. 
But, you know, the idea that the Saudis are going to sort of run from us um, simply because we get tougher with them on human rights, for instance, I think uh, doesn't won't necessarily bear out in reality. But I think it also is just as important to think about what they're doing with our weapons. I mean, it used to be when we sent weapons to Saudi Arabia that they gathered dust. Well, now the Saudis fire them um, at other nations, um, often at civilians. And there's a huge moral cost that comes to the United States. But there's also a practical security cost. This war in Yemen that we funded and supported for years, um, all of our security experts, all of our intelligence officers told us that the war in Yemen was increasing space for groups like al-Qaeda to operate, groups like ISIS to operate, to design plans against the United States. So these weapons we send to the Saudis, you know, A, they're, they can't be easily replaced. But I think we also have to think about whether or not it's worth both the moral and security cost that is mounting to the United States by supporting a Saudi regime that really doesn't listen to us when it comes to how they use those weapons. So you mentioned uh, Yemen, uh, which has been, I think, a, a longstanding issue that you've been deeply concerned about, in particular Saudi Arabia's role in fueling or escalating that civil war. Does your proposal and does the uh, kind of change in tone in Washington about Saudi Arabia in any way give you hope that the civil war in Yemen and Saudi Arabia's involvement in Yemen may come to a resolution? So I, I President Biden made a very important decision at the beginning of his term, which was to end the most significant kinds of support that we provided to the Saudis for the war in Yemen. But that did not have the impact that we had hoped. Uh, the Saudis agreed to a ceasefire, but have you know, not engaged in the kind of political process in Yemen that is necessary to bring that war to a close. And again, let me just restate the war in Yemen is a disaster for the world, for the United States and for Yemen, first and foremost, because it's the worst humanitarian catastrophe on the globe today, but also because you've got terrorist groups there that are, are, are operating more freely because of the civil war. There are further steps we could take, though, to constrain the Saudis' ability to perpetuate that war. Though we are not refueling their planes in midair, we're not selling them munitions that they use to drop inside Yemen. Uh, we do uh, essentially provide um, logistical support to the planes that fly missions over Yemen. And if we stopped servicing those planes, it would be hard, potentially impossible for the Saudis to continue that war. And I think this is the moment where we have to consider sort of taking that final step, um, which is a serious one because it essentially grounds in totality the Saudi Air Force. They couldn't fly missions over Yemen, but they also couldn't fly missions to protect their own territory. That's why we've been, uh, I think, hesitant to take that step. But I think the Saudis are giving us, you know, lots of reasons for us to, you know, make this more comprehensive rethink of our security partnership with them. I brought up the meeting with um, MBS uh, before, and as you know, last year, the Biden administration released uh, the intelligence report, uh, U.S. intelligence report, concluding that MBS had approved the operation that killed Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi journalist. You have called for full declassification of that report, and the Public Interest Declassification Board has endorsed your 
position on that, that this should be fully declassified. The White House has kind of brushed it off and said there were only minor redactions. Do you have reason to believe that there is important information that has not been released that would shed light on the Khashoggi murder? And um, if so, tell us what you believe it is. So I, I, I actually do think at this point, most of the most critical information has been released. Um, and, and so while I had been fighting for that release for a long time, the Biden administration's release, I think, got into the public sort of debate most of the information that we needed, but it took uh, far, far too long. And I'll be honest with you, there are you know plenty of other documents and records out there that, you know, Republican and Democratic presidents hold classified simply because the contents are politically embarrassing, not because you're actually um, divulging any sources or methods related to the construction of that intelligence. So in this case, uh, I think we know enough, right? And as you said, uh, we've come to the conclusion that it is uh, highly likely that MBS personally oversaw and approved the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And that, of course, um, you know, has to be relevant to the decisions that we make about how we partner with Saudi Arabia. You just can't credibly you know, be out there as a, as a country pitching the importance of freedom of press, democracy, rule of law, uh, if you're sort of not delivering any consequences to a country that kidnapped and chopped up a journalist that was under your protection. I just wanted to come back for a second to the Saudi decision to cut production. And I'm interested in your perspective on, on why they did that, because strategically over the long term, it doesn't seem to be smart to back the Russians over the United States. And some have suggested that this may be MBS's efforts to intervene in American politics, uh, uh, to, to put the, his thumb on the scale right before the midterms, and, and then perhaps with the hope that Trump would get reelected. Do you put any, any credence into that? Do you think that he might be doing that? You know, having watched MBS pretty closely over the course of the last decade, um, I have no interest in trying to figure out how he makes decisions because so many of them have um, no strategic sense underlying them, whether it be the decision to invade Yemen, the decision to kidnap the Lebanese prime, uh, prime minister, uh, or this decision to side with Russia at uh, OPEC+. Plus. Uh, so I, I just don't know. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm not going to suggest that it's because he wants to get involved in American politics. Um, it may just be because he wants to make more money. And uh, in the short run, um, this is the quickest way to balance the Saudi budget and to bring in more oil revenues. So no clue why MBS makes the decisions he does. Consistently, he makes bad decisions. Well, let's talk about what's going on in Ukraine right now, uh, which is clearly related. Um, there's a, a lot of anxiety over Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And the president said famously last week at a fundraiser that we are closer to nuclear Armageddon than we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Do you believe that to be the case? And if so, what should we be saying to the Russians to make sure that Putin doesn't do this? Well, I, I agree with the president that the risk is very high. Um, I think it's also True to say, we don't, you know, have information today to suggest the use of a tactical nuclear weapon is imminent. It is also important that we don't allow 
the threatened use of a tactical nuclear weapon to essentially destroy the post-World War II order in which big nations are not allowed to change their borders by invading smaller nations. Um, if the threat of uh, nuclear weapon usage effectively became some kind of green light to invade, occupy, and annex neighboring countries, I, I don't think we would see the end of it. So it's important for us to, you know, not, you know, take these threats and, you know, tell Ukraine it's time to raise the white flag. Um, these threats are being made in part because Russia is losing, um, because the Ukrainian people have decided that they want to defend their country. And uh, the Russian military is disintegrating, at least in parts along that front. It does make sense to communicate to the Russians that there will be serious consequences. It is important right now to put pressure on countries that have even more leverage than the United States, like China and India, to help convince Putin that this is the time to withdraw his forces and sit down at the negotiating table. So, you know, there are steps that we should take, but we can't, you know, simply give Putin what he wants simply because he has made this irrational, cataclysmic threat. But what should those consequences be if the Russians actually do this? Well, I don't I don't think you make those threats publicly, right? I don't think that I sort of uh, deliver the, that threat or the president should deliver that threat publicly. Obviously, there's a range of of options, um, you know, beginning with um, a series of multilateral economic steps that could be absolutely devastating, right? Um, if the Chinese, for instance, were to decide in the wake of a nuclear weapons attack to withdraw their purchase of Russian oil, that would likely be the end of this war. So we've got to work with other partners to uh, communicate some of those consequences. But those consequences obviously could involve more significant U.S. military action. Um, you've heard you know, some U.S. military leaders suggesting that those consequences would include the United States uh, actually attacking Russian forces inside Ukraine or perhaps inside Russia. Uh, that likely would set off a longer term conflict. But I, I just think it's important to understand that there's a there's a range of consequences from multilateral economic consequences, which could be devastating uh, to military consequences. And, you know, right now that planning has to happen inside the White House and that those communications to the Russians need to happen privately. So, Senator, just in winding down, um, just to switch topics, we want to ask you a couple of questions about a story that's uh, near and dear to your heart. Yesterday, uh, on Wednesday, a jury in your home state of Connecticut ordered conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to pay nearly a billion dollars uh, in damages to the families of eight Sandy Hook families for his his lies about the massacre that took place there in 2012 and the suffering that that caused them. They experienced, you know, death threats, rape threats, you know, people promising to to dig up the graves of the children who died there, to desecrate them. Alex Jones live-streamed the verdict and mocked the families while he was doing that. What's your reaction to the verdict? And I'm curious about someone like Alex Jones. If 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 you had an opportunity to to say something to him, or if you were in alone uh, in a room alone with him, like what would you do? How would you react to Alex Jones? I mean, Alex Jones is is a is a clown. He's a performer, right? Um, and 
Um, he's doing this because it makes him money. I mean, I can't understand what goes on inside the brain of somebody like that. I can't understand how any human being would delight in torturing the parents of dead children. I don't know how you sort of live with yourself if that's, you know, what you do every day. But I guess, you know, I want the focus to be much more broadly than on Alex Jones. Alex Jones is still a celebrity in the political right. I mean, there's a new documentary out about Alex Jones and every single young conservative is abuzz about it. Um, he still gets defended by mainstream Republicans, right? J.D. Vance, who you know is asking to be a United States senator from one of the most important states in the union, um, still has a tweet up in which you know he calls Alex Jones a credible source of information, one who should be elevated in the American political dialogue. So, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, change Alex Jones's business model, but man, why aren't there more Republicans out there condemning this guy? Why is he still invited to all of these conservative conferences um, until the political right decides that these conspiracy theorists, these Sandy Hook harassers are going to be purged from the right? Somebody will replace Alex Jones because there's a market there for it. So the culpability here is on Jones, but it is also much more broadly on the Republican Party that continues to celebrate Alex Jones. Well, following up on that, you know, in the wake of Uvalde, you managed to lead a coalition to pass probably the first uh, gun control measures uh, in decades. Was that actually a sign of momentum? Did it raise the prospect of future improvements in our gun laws or was it a we'll go this far and no more? No, I, I think it's a watershed moment, Victoria. I really do. I think you can I think you can sort of look at the last 30 years in, in, uh, of uh, on the issue of gun violence in three parts. Um, you know, for the decade prior to Sandy Hook, the gun lobby was omnipotent. They got everything they asked for. Um, that was the period of time in which, you know, the assault weapons ban expired. That was when they got the product liability exemption for firearms. Then Sandy Hook happens. And for the next 10 years, we build the sort of modern anti-gun violence movement. And there's a sort of decade of parity in which neither side get, gets anything. The gun lobby comes to the Washington with their priorities, but they can't get anything done. But we have our priorities and we're stymied as well. But now we are entering what I think will be a decade of progress, a decade in which it's the anti-gun violence movement that is dominant. Maybe not omnipotent because we still have a pretty strong force on the other side, but this is our, this is our decade, right? So we start with the bill this summer, now we move on to further restrictions on assault weapons, universal background checks. Uh, I think you will see pretty consistent progress over the next 10 to 15 years. And, and the, for a simple reason, we're just stronger. You know, the anti-gun violence movement just has more volunteers, more money, more resources, more passion than the gun lobby does now. And what I know about politics is that that matters. Um, it matters in a way that is mostly, most often definitive. So I think that's where we are. Well, what also will likely matter is the results of the uh, upcoming elections uh, as to how much uh, progress you can make on that score. But Senator, I want to thank you again for joining us. And um, as always, we would um, love to have you back. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it.